All right, good morning, guys. I think I was last here for a lesson on Mark 7, I think, which seems like it was a long time ago, but you're only on 12 now, so I don't know what to make of that. Mark is one of the shorter Gospels, so if you guys ever get to Luke, that'll, that'll take a minute. That'll take a minute to accomplish, but I'm glad to be here. Um, I was happy to, to step in when, when Scott asked. This is a, an interesting back and forth that Jesus is in the middle of, right? So I know you've been off for a week. How many of you were at camp Last weekend, probably a big chunk of you. How many of you have caught up on sleep since then? Scott, no? I didn't think you're... The young ones tend to recover a lot quicker. I'd be down for a while. So before we get into today's section, just to do a little bit of a, a recap uh, to get our bearings where we were, the last lesson you had, I listened to it uh, online. It looked like the title was uh, The Jesus Trap. Cool title. I tried to top it with the Not Far From The End Zone, but I don't know. Jesus Trap is pretty good. But to do a quick quiz to see what you remember and to get our bearings, let's get a couple of you, see if you can answer. And I am going to engage you today. I'm going to force it because I know you need it, just getting back into things. But what were the two questions or scenarios that have already been presented to Jesus in what you studied two weeks ago? We had a question from one group of opponents and then a scenario from another group. Anybody want to, to share? Yeah? Yeah, exactly. So, well, before, let's go. That's right. That was the second question. What was the first question that they, that they had? Yeah. Uh, whether or not they should pay taxes. And Jesus said yes, didn't he? That's a bummer. But yeah, you're right. In, a, in Mark 12, starting in verse 13, Jesus is confronted by some of the religious leaders of his day, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they tried to trap him with this question about taxes, whether or not it was lawful for them to pay taxes, taxes to Caesar, and he responded brilliantly, as typical of Jesus, with the render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's and render to God what belongs to God. So he not only completely avoided their trap, but he highlighted the importance of recognizing proper authority and the jurisdictional separation of what belongs to whom, and ultimately that we ourselves belong to God. And you can picture, you know, the, the Pharisees and Herodians thinking, dang it, that was a good, good answer. So then group number two came in, the Sadducees, and like uh, she answered up front, they came in and tried a new thing to trip up Jesus, and starting in verse 18, they pre presented this somewhat ridiculous hypothetical scenario of this wife who's just turning through brothers one after another that keep dying, and they wanted to know, okay, Jesus, in this scenario, she's gone through seven husbands in the resurrection, which they didn't even believe in, whose wife will she be? And Jesus, again, responding appropriately, stated that, you know, this whole idea of marriage and family that you have in the afterlife, in the resurrection, it's not even going to be how you think. You're thinking completely wrong about this. Um, he's telling them basically that that was a dumb question. Your question was bad and you should feel bad. Uh, that's a paraphrase uh, of mine. But his enemies are 0 for 2 at this point, right? That's what brings us to our passage today, where we come to this third round of questions for Jesus, this time brought to him by a scribe. But this time, at least in my interpretation, it seems like it's a sincere question. Now, I'll talk through a little bit of the argument where this could still have been a trap, but it seems clear to me, based on how the interaction unfolds, and at least by the end of that interaction, that the scribe was sincerely asking this question. So, as is uh, our practice, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read this next section for us from Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. 28 to 34. 
And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray and we'll get into this today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning with these, uh, these new, younger, younger believers. I'm so thankful for their heart for learning more about you. I pray that our study of this interaction with the scribe would be encouraging to us and it would teach us what it is that we truly need to know about Jesus. pray that in his name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So this morning, let's start our study by first examining what the question was that was brought before Jesus. As we said, Jesus has just finished answering that second challenge from the Sadducees, telling them that their, their teaching and what they're thinking about the resurrection is completely wrong. And now a scribe who has been observing this comes out of the crowd and says, which commandment is the most important of all? As I said, my conviction is that this is a sincere question. The text said that he was on the sidelines and he heard the arguments going on before, hearing how Jesus answered and was impressed by Jesus. Now, this guy was a scribe. He was likely a, a Pharisee, the, the classic bad guys of the New Testament, right? But not all of the Pharisees were lost causes. I think that we have a habit. We're not always careful with our language, and we tend to look at the first century Jews as all of them being messed up. We, we all do it. We're not careful, and we say things like, the Jews rejected Jesus, or the Jews called for Jesus to be crucified. The Jews hunted down Christians. Well, not all of them, Right? Who were the very first Christians? Who did Peter preach to at Pentecost? It was the devout Jews from all the nations. And they asked, what do we need to do? And he told them, repent and be baptized. And a whole bunch of them did. The the early church, especially the very, very early church, was mostly made up of Jews. And what job title did Paul have before he got the job title of apostle? He was a Pharisee, right? So not all of the Pharisees, not all of the Jews were wicked and lost causes. Better terminology for most of those interactions would be that the Jewish leaders sought to crucify Jesus and things like that. So just because this guy was a scribe, just because he was a Pharisee, we don't automatically give him the title of villain. I believe that he was pretty impressed with the smackdown that Jesus was laying on these guys. And as someone, a scribe who knew the scriptures really, really well, perhaps not following them appropriately because of all the extra traditions they added. But I think he knew that what Jesus was saying was spot on. And he wanted to take his opportunity to get in a question when he could. And the best he could come up with was, uh, what's the greatest commandment of all of them? Like, imagine yourself, you've got one question with some super brilliant guy or gal. You're going to try to get the most bang for your buck. And this is what he came up with. Of all these commandments, what's the most important thing that I need to know? So that's how I understand the interaction. I get that from the context, how he was impressed, and based on then what we'll see later with his response to Jesus' follow-up questions uh, as well. 
Just to be fair, the argument for this still being a trap, which I think is still quite plausible, uh, I'm okay saying that I could have this wrong. It has happened before, I think. Once or twice I've been incorrect about something. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Um, But a question about which law is the number one law would not be a very surprising question for like a Pharisee type to ask in this situation, especially if he's trying to trip somebody up and catch them. Uh, The scribes and Pharisees were super concerned with the law. They had everything nailed down. Uh, The rabbis of the day counted 613 distinct laws in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 365 negative commands or prohibitions and 248 positive ones. And this guy very may well have had all of those memorized. So the argument for this being a trap was that they were hoping that in answering this question, Jesus would list something outside of that list, thus kind of elevating himself to be more authoritative than God, and that would be plenty to get him in trouble, charge him with blasphemy or something like that, which eventually does happen. So fair enough, I can work with that scenario. In fact, I would propose a compromise that maybe this was a planted question, that this scribe was working with his Pharisee buddies and they planned this question to trap Jesus to try to trip him up. But by the time it came for him to ask it, I think he had a bit of a change of heart and was starting to agree with Jesus. So he still asked it, but with more legitimate intentions. So let's, let's all agree that that's exactly what, what happened, and I've got that right on. But either way, this is the question on the floor. Which of either, let's say, the Ten Commandments or of the 613 laws, he wants to know which one is most important. And Jesus responds by quoting two passages of Scripture from the Torah, again, from the first five books of the Bible. The first is from Deuteronomy 6. And here, you're going to get really uncomfortable, but I'm going to force this out of you. We're going to take a little bit of a pause, because I want to make sure that you're awake and with me. Plus, this will be a skill that you can impress all of your friends with. If you've got your Bible open to Mark still, I want you to not look at it. You can keep your finger in it, because I don't want you to cheat. I'm going to ask you some trivia questions, and then we're going to do a little activity together. The first trivia question, uh, the first thing that Jesus says is, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So question one, who knows where from Deuteronomy 6 he is quoting from? Where does that line come from? It's in Deuteronomy 6, and it's towards the beginning, but it's not verse 1, and it is not verse 2, but it is less than verse 5. (laughs) It's Deuteronomy 6.4. Okay, very good. Wow. Impressive. I'm really, really uh, excited to see how you answer these next two. So Deuteronomy 6.4, correct, is where he starts that. Who knows knows what that verse or that section really, Deuteronomy 6.4 and the next several verses, that has like a special name, particularly for the Jewish people. It's known as something. It's, I'll I'll help you. It's the great... <laughs> but it's a word there. I got a $20 bill for anybody under the age of 18, if they can answer what it's called. The Great Shema. Anybody heard that? Okay, $20 is safe. Good. It's known as the Great Shema, so he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 which is the first part of what is known as the Great Shema, which is something that every Jewish person of the day and even faithful Jews now would recite every morning and every evening. This is a passage that they literally like wore on their body when they walked around. They had what's called a 
phylactery, which is like the first century version of a, of a fanny pack, you could call it, where they kept this scripture on them. This was a super important verse um, to uh, all the Jews. Question three now. I'm super optimistic about this one. And for this one, I'm going to pull out a hundy. And I think it's real. Who can say Deuteronomy 6.4, the first part of the Shema, in Hebrew? I'm willing to help you out. Remember that they read right to left in Hebrew. Anybody? My wife's going to be ticked if somebody actually gets this right. Okay. If you're asked this question next week, you're going to be able to do it because we're going to learn it right now. I, because I love you, have taken this Hebrew that I also can't read, by the way, and put it into phonetic English so that you'll all be able to say, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. We're all going to say that today. So get your, <laughs> get your guttural sounds ready because you're going to need them, okay? So I'm going to do it line by line. I'm going to say it. And when I do this, that means you say it. And if you don't say it, you owe me $100, okay? Okay, so here's the first part. I've underlined where you put the emphasis. I'll say it, and then you repeat. So the first part is Shema. Yisrael. Amazing. Shema Yisrael. So good. That means hear, O Israel. That's the first part. Next part is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first part of that is the divine name of God. Who knows the divine name of God in the Old Testament? Yeah? Yahweh, right. So it starts with Yahweh. I hear the guttural sounds. That's good. Eloheinu. Yahweh Eloheinu. Okay. Excellent. Let's do the first two lines. Shema Yisrael. Yahweh Eloheinu. I don't know if there's a Hebrew school nearby, but you guys are killing it. I'll tell you that. Now, the last one is where we really get the sounds, okay? Because that second word is not Ichad. It's Echad. Okay, so we'll get there. So we have the divine name again, and this is the Lord is one. Yahweh. <clears throat> Here it comes. Be considerate of the person in front of you when you say this one. Echad. Okay, good. Yahweh Echad. Okay. Do we think we can do the whole thing like at the same time together? Let's try it, okay? As I start, join me, okay? Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Really good. Really impressed with you. That doesn't have anything to do with the rest of what we're going to talk about. But really good. And now you have the opportunity one day to maybe even win $100. So you should feel very proud of yourselves. You can tell your parents that you've learned Hebrew in the junior high, high school class. I don't know how many churches are doing that, so kind of a big deal. But back to the situation. Now that you're awake and excited and you feel very accomplished. So Jesus responds to the question about the greatest commandment 
saying that what we just saw, that is the, the first thing. He wanted to lay that out first. So reminder, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And as I said there, this is a quote from Deuteronomy, but there is a little bit of a twist there. I don't know if you had Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 memorized, but in Deuteronomy, uh, it actually says that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. So Jesus adds in that we are to love Jesus or love God with all of our mind. Some scholars say that the word strength in Hebrew kind of in, entails mind. Others would say that this is Jesus asserting some authority, additional authority over the scripture. I don't know. Um, but he doesn't stop there of telling us to love God with all of our being. He then goes on to quote from another of the Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus 19.18, where he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what he answered them. They said, what is the greatest commandment? He said, first, remember, God is one. Next, we're to love him with everything that we have, all of our faculties, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves." So I want to point out a few things that we can just notice a few things about Jesus' answer. The first is that all of the law, it all boils down to love. The summary of all of the law is love. Now, there are a lot of commands in the Bible. If you go by that Jewish understanding, there are 613 in the Torah. That's a lot of rules. That's a lot to keep track of. Um, Are there any golfers in here? Anybody play golf? Yeah. You might not know. There's an awful lot of rules in golf also. Uh, The United States Golf Association has their rule book. They're the governing body of golf in the U.S. They technically have 25 rules, but each of them have like four to five sub points. So let's say there's 100 rules of golf, right? If you're trying to introduce somebody to golf, you're going to take them golfing for the first time, and you start listing the 100 rules to them in the car, that's going to be way too much for them to remember. They're also never going to golf with you again. But all of those rules can be boiled down to one simple concept. You could boil down those hundred rules to say, the point of golf is you use a stick to hit a little ball into a little hole, taking as few hits as possible. All 100 rules are summarized in that little sentence there. So similarly, all, let's say it's 613 laws of God, can be summarized with, this is about love God, love neighbor. Sometimes we tend to pit the law of God and the idea of love against each other as if we have to make some kind of choice. Am I going to act according to the law now or am I going to act according to love? That's a false, false choice. As Paul puts in uh, Romans 13.10, he says that love is the fulfilling of the law. And Jesus would tell us that you can't actually obey rightly without love. Without a spirit of love, rote obedience to the law really means nothing to God. Now, for the unbeliever, all of these laws, this is, this is not good news. The law is not good for them. It's only condemning. But for the believer, and we'll touch on this more later, the law teaches us how to love. And obedience to the law is a demonstration of love. So that's the first thing. The second is that true love, real biblical love, is all-consuming. We see in the text that God's standard for love requires all of us. We're to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. In summary, everything we have is to be used to love God. And at the same time, we're to love our neighbor the same way that we love ourselves, which is an awful lot. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were consumed with this law for some of the same reasons that people get consumed with them today. They thought that in obedience to the law, they could earn God's favor and thus earn a place alongside him in heaven. 
So the law for them was more of a ladder to try to get to God. And unfortunately, this belief often continues today, even in Christian circles. Uh, You'll hear plenty of people that aren't Christians. They might be in the spiritual, not religious camp. If you were to ask them the question of, you know, will you go to heaven when you die? They'll, of course, say yes. And when asked why, it's typically, well, I'm a good person, right? They're looking towards their good behavior, their good works to earn them their place in heaven. But even amongst confessing Christians, you'll often hear people say, they'll they'll of course confess, yes, I know I'm not good enough to get into heaven. But then they'll say, but I still wish to do my part to gain God's love. Um, God will reward my sincere efforts. But what we see with Jesus's summary of the law is he's not making it easier to meet the requirements of the law. He's actually making it a lot harder to meet the requirements of the law. So quick poll. These aren't trick questions, so just answer honestly. Who has loved God with their heart at some point in their life? Hopefully, hopefully everybody. Who has loved God uh, with their soul at some point in their life? Okay. Uh, Who's loved God with their mind at some point? Studied God in some way? You're all here, so this counts, so you all get a freebie on that one. Um, Who's loved God with their strength at one point, doing some kind of active service in God's name? Also, everybody. Um, Who has sacrificially loved somebody else as much as you love yourself? Okay. Excellent. But now, be ready to raise your hands. Who, for even five seconds of your life, has loved God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, while at the same time loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Crickets. Oh, we got a hand back there? We'll have to talk later, because no, you haven't. (laughs) But that's the reality. For every other human that's been born as a natural human, other than Jesus Christ, since the fall of Adam, that's the reality. We've never actually done that all the way. And any second we haven't done that is a second that is enough to condemn us if we're living under the law. Something to keep in mind we'll talk about a bit more later. And then the third thing to note about uh, Jesus' answers is that love for God and love for others is not really separate. They're inseparable concepts. Jesus was asked which commandment is the most important of all, and yet he responded giving two commandments. But we shouldn't read that as two separate priorities in our life. These are two foundational commandments that are inextricably connected to one another. One of the key ways to fulfill the command to love God is by loving our neighbors. And this is what uh, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.20. He wrote, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So it's not like we're supposed to exhaust ourselves loving God and then if we have anything left over, we go try to love our neighbor. They go together and they have to go together. My love for God is demonstrated in my love for others. Uh, Martin Luther had a good perspective on this when he said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. So God does command good works of us, not for our salvation and not because he needs some warm bodies to get work done on his behalf, but because the good works he's laid before us are the means by which he blesses others. So in our service of others, we are also serving God. Okay, let's move then to the response, how the scribe responds to this answer from Jesus. And this is what I find very 
cool and exciting, and it gives me hope uh, for the scribe. But the scribe straight up agrees with Jesus here. Um, We don't know the tone. There's not a sarcasm font in the Bible. We don't know the tone of how he responded, but it sure sounds affirmative. I think he's saying, uh, yeah, wow, you you nailed it. You nailed it, teacher. I, I really think that this scribe is starting to get it. I think a light bulb is going off in his head because after he repeats back to Jesus basically what Jesus just said to him, he concludes by saying, love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. He, he affirms that. But then he says that it's even more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying to Jesus, what you just summarized is more important than the big show that we Pharisees put on, right? A Pharisee of Pharisee or a scribe of scribes That's not something he's going to say, especially with all of his buddies around if he doesn't believe it. So that last little tidbit of him saying that this is even more important than the offerings and sacrifices, that's very telling to me that the scribe is on the right track, we'll say. And I believe that Jesus affirms that. As the scenario continues, Jesus seems to agree with how that guy responded, and he says that it's a wise answer. And then he says something really interesting to this guy. He tells him that he is not far from the kingdom of God. That's an interesting thing to say. Uh, There's been a lot of kingdom talk up to this point. Uh, In fact, some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark was in his sermon where he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, now he's telling this scribe that he's not far from that kingdom. Now, I guess the question would be, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? Are there any football players in here? Yeah, a few. Anybody familiar with the rules of football? Know what a football field looks like? I'm not seeing a lot of action on this side of the room, so we're going to have to use your imaginations here, okay? Well, if your football team is down by three with two minutes to go and you are not far from the end zone, how are you feeling at that point? Probably pretty good, pretty encouraged. Well, what if your team is down by three, you're not far from the end zone, let's say you're on the six-yard line, but time has expired. Does it matter at all at that point that you were not far from the end zone? No. No, it doesn't. You, you lose. Being not far from the end zone is very, very different in a game of football from being in the end zone. In the same way, being not far from the kingdom of God is a very, very different reality than being in the kingdom of God. So maybe, maybe this scribe thought that because he was rightly understanding Jesus about which commandments were most important, maybe he thought that he was just about in the kingdom and he was in really good shape. If that is his only takeaway after this, he's unfortunately going to remain not far from the kingdom for the rest of his life and then in eternity not be in the kingdom at all. So what's he missing then? What would take him from not far from the kingdom to in the kingdom? Well, Jesus told us this back in in that opening sermon in Mark when he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. So repentance and belief is what's missing. That's what still remained for this scribe to go from out of kingdom to in kingdom. He needed to repent, not only of his sins, of course, but also of his trust that he had in himself to meet the requirements of the law. And then beyond that, he needed to have faith. He needed to believe in something, again, not in his own goodness, 
but in the good news of this Jesus Christ standing before him. He needed to put his faith in Jesus' fulfillment of those commandments versus his own. So my hope, my hope for this scribe is that in hearing Jesus speak, in hearing Jesus answer these questions, in Jesus summarizing all of those particular rules that the Pharisees were trying to follow, with all those nuts and bolts, hearing that that has to be done perfectly, hearing that all-encompassing love is what's required, I'm hopeful that the weight of that was crushing to that scribe. I'm hoping that he was now rightly understanding the actual requirements of God's law and his standard and realized his inability to actually do it. And I'm hopeful that he realized that he would need a substitute to advocate for him. I'm hopeful that he could, to take the metaphor farther than is helpful, that he could look to Jesus to score the touchdown for him because he has no ability to get to the end zone on his own. So I'm hopeful that the scribe, you know, filled out his connection card and said, I'd like to speak with somebody about what it means to have a Christian. And then maybe a week later, check the box, I'd like to speak to a pastor about baptism. That's what I'm hopeful for. I'm hopeful that the scribe got the point and he repented and believed and that we would see him one day in eternity. Unfortunately, we don't know. We don't know what happens with this scribe, but that's what I'm hopeful for. Uh, Right after this interaction, our section that we read today ends, uh, I think, with exasperation, probably, from the people who were trying to trap Jesus. Uh, Verse 34 ends the section with, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So I imagine that they're thinking, well, we just got schooled with our two questions and humiliated, frankly, and the guy who was supposed to be on our team now wound up agreeing with everything Jesus said. Let's call it a wrap for today. That's what I think was happening. Uh, Unfortunately for them, and you'll study in future weeks, that wasn't the end of the interaction. Jesus, in the next section, starts doing the questioning uh, himself, but you'll cover that uh, next time. But before we we close for today, let's talk about a little bit of application. The first thing that I want to point out, especially for us to remember, is that the law, the law is good, but it can't, it's not good news. That's one of the tags that I have on the notes. The law is good, but not good news. The law can't save you, but believer, I want to remind you that the law can no longer condemn you either. This is one of the soapboxes that I tend to get on. So you may have even heard me talk about this um, before. But because we have been redeemed by Christ, like I said, the law is good, but not good news. But because of the good news, we are free to pursue the law with obedience, but without fear. And what I mean by that is that For the unbeliever, when they hear the crushing weight of the law, if they remain in unbelief, the law can do nothing but condemn them. Again, that doesn't make the law bad. For us, recognizing that Jesus Christ is our advocate and he has successfully met those requirements of the law on our behalf, as as Paul has to answer the question, does that mean that because grace is so awesome, we just go and sin a whole bunch to show how awesome grace is? Not at all, by no means. We can now pursue the goodness of the law, but without that fear of failure. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and obey without fear of condemnation. Um, There's very frequently a ditch on both sides of the road for Christians when they come into the faith, and I've fallen into one side of the ditch more than the other, but there's two ditches for Christians when it comes to the law once they have put their trust in Jesus. One is, okay, I'm in the door now. I recognize that Christ has done everything on my behalf 
Now time to get back to work and work and be really impressive with my obedience to the law. And that leads to eventually a level of arrogance. If you're doing really well, at least in your own eyes, of obedience to the law, makes you arrogant to where you can look at others in a, in a condemning fashion and feel very puffed up. And what you're doing when you're doing that, you're doing a lot of things, but one thing you're doing is you're missing out on grace. You're forgetting the grace of God that has even gotten you where you are today. I like to think of it, do we have any gamers in here? Maybe you don't want to, write, like video gamers? You don't have to raise your hand. Oh, we got a couple. Have you heard the term uh, like God mode in video games? It's like where you get, I see, I see some chuckling, like, oh yeah, I know what God mode is. It's awesome. It's like a, it's a cheat code, basically, which makes, just to summarize it, it makes you invincible in a game, right? I, I used this in Call of Duty back in the day because I really like Call of Duty, but I sucked at Call of Duty. But I wanted to pursue the mission. And what we, what we need, to, I'm going to try to make a, a parallel here. I'm going somewhere with, with this. When I'm in God mode in Call of Duty, when I'm invincible, I don't just go nuts. That cheat code frees me to pursue the mission objectives without fear of ultimate failure, without fear of death. Now, I'm still going to have some ups and downs in there. It's still a challenging road, but I'm able to get to the final boss and win. If I get there and then brag about how good I am at Call of Duty, that's like the missing out on the grace of God. I'm forgetting that what the only reason I ever make it to the end zone, to the final boss, to eternity, to just mix all the metaphors together, is because I've been given the cheat code. And for us, the cheat code is Jesus Christ. The ditch on the other side of the road is, okay, I know that I'm in by grace. God has saved me. And now I'm going to try to pursue what he demands of me. But man, I'm bad at it. I keep failing. I have these persistent sins. I'm a terrible Christian. There's no way God can continue to love me. In that scenario, you too are forgetting about grace, that God's grace is sufficient for all of your sins. They're forgetting that they have the cheat code. I don't need to worry about the sniper up here because I know if he shoots me, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make it to the end. So do with that metaphor what you will. But that's the point that I want to make for Christians. So I'm going to assume I'm talking to Christians here. The law is good. The law of God is good. But it is not the good news. But you have the good news. And that frees you to pursue obedience, to pursue loving God and loving others without the fear, not of the potential that you'll fall short, but knowing that when you fall short, God's grace is sufficient for you. And I, I have two verses that have been really helpful for the first one for me, because I fell into the arrogant category, and that was Romans 4, 4 to 5, that said, Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Remember, as you're pursuing good works, which I truly hope that you do, remember that you're not earning your wage that way, that you are pursuing those in freedom in response to what it is you've been given. And then the other, for those who are in despair, who feel that they're not enough for God, uh, I appreciate Matthew eleven twenty eight that says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember that Jesus Christ has bought us for a price. He's done all the things that we've failed to do. He has loved God with all of his faculties. He has loved his neighbor as himself. And he says, take all of that merit, take my merit, you have it, and give me all of your failures. A ridiculous trade. 
But that's, we are benefactors of that, and we can rest in his finished work. Those are the big things that I want to take away, take away today. Um, really quickly, some other application. Now that you're like, I'm, I'm with you, Chris. I still do need a little bit of help of knowing how to actually do that. I'm not going to put my trust in it, but help me out. How do I love God with everything that I have? How do I love my neighbor as myself? Just a few things um, that I would tell you today. So just some practical things. So how, how can you practically, and I put in parentheses so we didn't forget, enabled by the Holy Spirit, and these will be carried out imperfectly by you, but how can you actually love God with all of yourself? Tons of ways. So I just put a couple things on here, and I wanted to point out that there are private, personal ways to do this, but also corporate, corporate as a body of believers. Sometimes, especially in the American culture, we get very um, isolated as the Lone Ranger Christian. That's not the way to do it. Um, but but for when you are by yourself, some practical ways would be through prayer, number one. Speak to your Father. Demonstrate your love to Him by having a relationship with Him. And then, of course, things like Bible study, learning more about this God that you supposedly love. Um, if I say that I love my wife and you ask me questions about her, what she's like, the things she likes to do, and I say, oh, I don't know. That's demonstrating that I don't actually love her because I don't know anything uh, about her. And then theological education. Um, taking steps beyond just reading the scripture, which of course is primary, but trying to understand how do I piece together the, the whole Bible and understand the whole meta narrative? How do I uh, investigate these other topics of interest that are all here? You'll spend your whole life and not exhaust what there is to learn about um, God through other study. That's another way to, to love God with uh, your mind. And then corporately, primary is worshiping together worshiping as a body of believers, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another as you are singing to God. Um, then just participating in what's, what's called the normal means of grace, the normal life of the church, sitting under sound preaching, being involved in baptism, either your own or taking part in, praying for and encouraging those who are being baptized, and then receiving the Lord's Supper, that family meal that we have to remember what God has done for us. Those are some practical ways. That's not an exhaustive list, but if you need a start, that'll get you through the next week. And then uh, on the other side, how do you practically, again, enabled by the Holy Spirit, carried out imperfectly, love your neighbor as yourself? And for a lot of us, we'd probably say this is the harder one, but it's mostly the harder one because people can usually see this one a little better than they can see the other one. But some practical ways, again, privately and corporately, would be, the first one's a mindset change. And I... I don't know if I can properly emphasize how important this first one is and what a change to your life it actually makes, but try to intentionally think the best of your neighbor. A lot of us become cynical. Maybe we've been burned before in our past or by someone over here, and we start to assume the worst of our neighbor, which makes it very difficult to love them. So make an effort with the risk of being burned again to intentionally think the best of your neighbor. That's a really important way to love them. Um, of course, pray for them, whether they know it or not, but also pray with them. And that's sometimes uncomfortable at first, but get used to it. It's such, a, it's such a blessing to pray with somebody and to have them pray with and for you. Um, evangelize them. If your neighbor is outside of the family of faith, share the good news of the gospel with them. That's what they uh, desperately need. Serve them in some way. Um, do acts of service for 
you could do it for your literal neighbor, but if your neighbor is anybody who God places before you, uh, try to be of benefit to their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. Uh, and then another really big one is to forgive them. And that's a really hard one, especially for those that have burned you in the past. Um, you have the option of carrying that burden of, of unforgiveness the rest of your life, but it's not going to do you any good. Um, the, the freedom that comes with forgiving your neighbor is... Is, is, really, is really beyond words. If you've not experienced it, the weight that is relieved from you when you forgive somebody is really a gift of God. And then corporately, worship with your neighbor. We, we do that here. Worship with them. Um, give to your neighbors that are in need. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that you can give of your treasures, of your time, of your talents, of whatever. Give to them to serve them and love them that way. Uh, and then just other acts of, of service. I, I know that you all are very good at serving, and that's a good habit to have. So those are just a handful of ways of loving God and loving neighbor, again, as a response to what God has already given to us. The, the, the law of God, remember, is good, but it is not the good news. I don't want you to lose the good news when we talk through these things. So that's the key message I want you to take away uh, for today, and hopefully I see all of you and this scribe in eternity one day. Any questions or comments from anybody? Any other Hebrew you'd like to learn? Because Scott would be happy to teach you. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, I will pray then, and we will dismiss. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for giving us your word and letting us know how it is that we can rightly love you and how it is we can serve our neighbor, but also revealing to us through your word the good news that when we fail to to meet those holy and perfect requirements, we have Jesus Christ to offer us his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. Oh God, that's such good news that that we can rest in. I pray that we would uh, meditate on the truth of what it is we really have been given, uh, how blessed and undeserving of it we are, and that we respond appropriately with love, with thankfulness, and seeking to obey your law because it is good and it is what you would desire for us and you've laid out good works for us to do to serve our neighbor. Thank you for that. Thank you for the ability to to rest in Christ and I pray in his name. Amen.